Hello there, my name's Simon Rofe and I'm here for another episode of the Global Sports Conversations podcast series on behalf of CISD at SOAS. I'm joined by Professor Susan Bromwell um, and I'm going to begin by asking her a question about her interest in sport and diplomacy and how she's arrived at this point. So Susan, over to you. Well, I started on this track as an athlete myself. I was a track and field athlete in the U.S. I was a member of what we call the Title IX generation. I was second class of women at my university to receive full um, scholarships. And so I was a track and field athlete throughout college. Um, so that's where my interest in um, sports and especially international sports um, came from. And then when, when I entered graduate school at, in an anthropology PhD program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, I was looking for a world area to study and I had a long-term interest in China and China had just um, opened up uh, to the possibility of US researchers actually going there and doing field work because um, diplomatic relations had just been restored with the US in 1979. And of course, the thing that had made the restoration of diplomatic relations possible was ping pong diplomacy. So I think, you know, as a China scholar and somebody who already had a sport background, it was just so crystal clear that sports were um, important in China politically and that they were a major um, sort of channel through which China had um, opened up to the outside world. So that made sports maybe a natural topic for me um, heading to China to do research. But at that time, I think almost nobody else thought sports were an important and nobody else in the West, I should say, thought sports were an important topic to research, particularly in the field of anthropology, were not a mainstream topic. They were, you know, probably not very well respected, um, not taken seriously. And so I kind of labored in obscurity for um, some 20 years until um, China started bidding for Olympic Games. And, and of course, finally won the bid for the um, 2008 Olympic Games. And heading into those games, suddenly, I think everybody realized that um, sports were important in China and that this was possibly a world-changing event. So I, I finally, you know, had my moment of uh, fame. So that was that sort of a brief recap of what got me into sports and um, how sports as a research topic have changed over the last, I mean, by now, 30 years. Thank you for sharing that, Susan. Um, I wonder, reflecting back on your uh, experiences as, a, as an athlete, how far was, were they uh, influenced? How far were you aware? How far did you care, perhaps, um, when you were competing about the sort of international implications of your uh, endeavours on the track? Well, we cared very deeply because um, the closest I ever came to making an Olympic team was in 1980 when I placed seventh in the what was then the pentathlon and the top three made the Olympic team. So I was the fourth alternate. But of course, by the time the Olympic trials were held, we knew that the U.S. was not going to those games. And there was a lot of discussion among the athletes about um, issues like, for example, how was it that our government, which never gave us a penny, had the right to um, stop us from reaching our dreams by 
taking away the possibility of, of taking part in these Olympic Games. And we also were quite aware of what was going on in the socialist countries. And even though this was in the midst of the Cold War, I think a lot of us felt that the state-supported system was more humane than the one under which we were trying to achieve our potential. Because, you know, remember that it wasn't until after 1984 that sports like track and field opened up to professionalism. So in 1980, we all had to be nominally amateurs, and most of us were waitresses and working for the U.S. postal system as mail delivery people. Um, In my case, I was a graduate student, um, which maybe in some ways made my life a little easier, although in terms of allocating my time, it was quite difficult to be both a Ph.D. student and train at that level. So, you know, we were really kind of at the breaking point as athletes then because the level in international sports had gotten so high that you could no longer be a part-time amateur athlete and contend with the Soviets and the East Germans. And our, our U.S. Olympic Committee and our government were pressuring us to achieve higher levels because in track and field, There was no world championships, and so the biggest meet of the year was the USA-USSR dual meet, and we'd been beaten by the Soviets pretty regularly over the um, Cold War period, particularly um, because the Soviet women could beat the U.S. women, and that, of course, was because um, U.S. women didn't have um, good opportunities in sports until, as I mentioned, the passage of Title IX uh, opened up the possibility for college scholarships. So, you know, when we looked at the socialist system, it seemed more fair that if our government expected us to represent the U.S. in certain ways, it should help us out financially. And as women, we saw the unfairness um, and the inequality in the sports system that was um, enabling the Soviets and East Germans, you know, to beat the U.S. Um, on the playing field with, when women were competing. Well, first of all, congratulations on your your past achievements. They are, uh, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, rank uh, very highly. So, congratulations on that. I think the um, the influence of um, you know, the athlete experience is a voice that um, is often overlooked within sport and diplomacy, not least in terms of the governance structures. And whilst that has been something that's come to the fore, you know, perhaps more um, recently, it's something that, you know, has been absent for last large, you know, parts of the, you know, history of international sport is what are the athletes' um, points of view. And certainly I think the gender dimension to this is is important um, to recognise also that, the prejudice um, of the international system um, that my gender studies colleagues would point to, regardless of dealing with sport or not, is something that's been manifest in sport, you know, very clearly, you know, the event that you competed in the pentathlon, um, you know, stark contrast to the decathlon that the men, uh, male athletes uh, undertook, um, regardless of the, you know, athletic prowess and uh, expertise that you needed to compete in, in both events as they, as they were then were. So I wonder whether um, thinking about that and now into your scholarly uh, career, the issues of um, diplomacy and the acceptance into uh, China have, as you said, come together um, around the Beijing uh, Olympics of 2008. Is there um, 
a means that you see of sport as an enabler to social change, and that might be with regard to issues of gender, but also other areas of of inclusion um, across you know the diversity um, spectrum. Have you seen sport be you know a real uh, agent for change in that regard? Well, I think in terms of the global political order, um, sport, yes, is definitely an agent for change. Whether it's an agent for change in the realm of gender, I'm not so sure. I mean, of course, it's been called the last bastion of male privilege, and sometimes it, it does seem to be that. So, but, but let me talk more about the global political order, because as, a, as an academic, I made a decision that I was not going to get pigeonholed into the gender category, that I wanted to research the, the, the big male topics. So um, I haven't, I, I, I have written and still write about gender in sport, but I'm really more interested in the halls of power. So um, I think that it has been overlooked that in terms of, of um, p- diplomacy, global diplomacy and sport, East Asia has really been a leader in this. And if not for the specific history of sport diplomacy in East Asia, I doubt that sport today would have the political importance that it has. Um, so, for example, if we go back to the Far Eastern Championship Games in the early 20th century, these were the world's first regional games. So East you know, people just don't realize that although East Asia has uh, does not have the grassroots sport culture, particularly in Western sports, that we, we have in the West. However, at another level, um, sports have always had a kind of political importance that I don't think they actually had in, in the West in that time period and perhaps not until recently. So, um, you know, with these first regional games already, it's, it was clear that sports were sort of an integral part of East Asian identity and a way in which rivalries were expressed. And then you move forward to 1950 when the Asian games were founded. And these, of course, have been the most uh, sort of vibrant world regional games since that time. The Asian games in some measures are a bigger event than the Olympic Games. So I've, I've asked myself, uh, why is it that sports have this importance in diplomacy in the absence of a grassroots sports culture? And I think the answer can be found in certain East Asian traditions, because diplomacy in East Asia is um, highly dependent on on ritual and protocol and um, symbolic expressions. So I think sport um, served as a, a great vehicle for that, with um, particularly as international sports events developed with all the pomp and the pageantry that accompany them. I think that has proven to be a great vehicle um, in, in East Asia for sort of symbolic e- expressions of um, either alliance or of hostility. I mean, we could even see that at the Pyeongchang Olympic Games. It was um, so interesting in February, where once again, um, a sporting event in East Asia um, served as a launching pad for the um, relaxation of tensions on the Korean peninsula. So, um, 
And, and I think we also saw with the Beijing Olympic Games that the world attention devoted to them probably helped to further increase the, uh, the, the, the credibility or cachet of um, Olympic Games as a, as a sort of major political event. Uh, anyway, so I think this is something that's been overlooked perhaps in scholarship, the, the role of East Asia in um, making sports an important part of global diplomacy. Thank you, thank you, Susan. I think that's a really interesting point, the way that even without that indigenous sporting um, participatory um, heritage, that because of sports representative qualities, one of the sort of troika of diplomatic characteristics alongside negotiation and communication, that it has particular resonance within the East Asian context and cultures. I think that's something that I've will certainly take away from this this conversation. If I might look, turn uh, attention to the future, perhaps, looking at you know this sort of golden arc, if you like, of uh, East Asian sports mega events, certainly from the Winter Olympics that you mentioned through to the Tokyo Summer Olympics, again to the Beijing Winter Olympics, um, with the Rugby World Cup of 2019 uh, thrown in also. Is there something particular about this moment in sort of long history of East Asia where sport and diplomacy come together that give us uh, you know uh, another sort of frame of reference another lens through which to understand both the diplomatic realm and the sporting realm um, to a greater degree yes certainly so one thing that's going on in east asia now which i i do think in the west again has been underappreciated because we do send the, tend to see the world you know through our own um, lens but uh you know there's this intense regional rivalry in East Asia, and particularly for what they call soft power right now. So, you know, soft power is um, different from hard military power. It's some sort of cultural power, and sport is is said to be one of the um, ways in which soft power can be exercised and acquired. And I think that this pursuit of soft power is in part a result of the tradition that I just mentioned in East Asia, there's a long Confucian respect for the importance and the power of education and culture. So there is that. On the other hand, there's the practical matter that both Japan and South Korea are occupied by U.S. military troops, and they are, um, you know, at a practical level, limited in the amount of hard power that they can um achieve and, you know, exercise. So I, I think these are um, reasons that uh, Japan and Korea have really focused on this pursuit of soft power via their um, cultural industries. So one reason that we have seen these uh, and will see these three consecutive Olympic Games in East Asia is due to this regional rivalry and the use of soft power to express it. And I think that is, you know, very focused on what's going on in the region, um, not so much um, maybe uh, on what's going on is in the world, not as much as, as maybe you might think. Um, but that said, you know, the pundits are asking whether this means that the West is in decline and East Asia is on the rise. I just don't agree with that viewpoint. But... I do think that at least this is a barometer of the wealth in East Asia because these economies have been growing rapidly and um, they are flourishing and they do have um, the, the money to mount these big mega events. 
I mean, I think that's a again a, a well thought out point in terms of how um, East Asia has a particular um, character that you know, manifests itself uh, in what Nye's called you know, soft power and the discussions around that. It's telling there for that you know within, for example, something like the um, soft power thirty that um, recently came out. There's only one uh, Asian uh, country in the, the top. 10, that being Japan, but it is certainly rising. South Korea is rising. China um, gets into the top top 30, but it's, uh, you know, as a barometer, you know, the prevalence of the, the, the sort of measures of success within or monitoring and evaluation within that exercise um, certainly have some, uh, you know, certainly have Western uh, characteristics at heart. And actually the, the index revamped with a sporting um, on a sporting basis, but East Asian countries far higher, um, particularly China, Japan, South Korea, and I think that regional dimension to it really, you know, plays out. The um, Winter Olympics in 2018, I think, will be remembered less for uh, Kim and Trump's um, uh, sort of reconciliation, such as it is, as much as it is between, you know, the reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula between North and South. One final question for you, uh, Susan, if I may. In terms of your um, looking into the um, future and perhaps, uh, you know, without wishing to speculate, but, you know, posit as an academic word, where do you see the, the future directions and particularly in terms of perhaps research and the, the, the next interesting questions we can ask about sport and diplomacy? Well, as a China scholar, I will say that the the field has been somewhat Western dominated. So I, I will hope that we'll see more scholarship that's from points of view outside the West. And I, I think that that's absolutely important, really, in getting a more accurate understanding of what's going on globally. I mean, if I could just return to this, um, you know, enduring debate about whether the West is in decline and it, East Asia is on the rise or China, is China on the rise? Uh, I think it's very helpful to actually talk to Chinese um, people and government officials um, and, and Chinese academics uh, and ask them that question because they really don't see it that way. Um, and, you know, I, I wish that were better understood outside of China. I mean, they recognize that China has um, very big internal problems that make that still make it relatively weak in terms of trying to exercise or increase its influence on the world scene. And um, but the other thing that's interesting to me as an anthropologist is just to analyze China's presence and influence in powerful international organizations. So I've, I've looked, for example, at um, China's influence in the International Olympic Committee, and you still find just really basic um, problems. They, they have a hard time um, appointing IOC members whose English is at a level that makes them functional. You know, they just don't have that many people yet who have a strong background in sports, are sort of, um, you know, intellectually qualified to engage in high-level diplomacy, um, and who also have the ne necessary language skills. Even if they have the language skills, they don't like to do some of the things you need to do to be a successful networker inside the IOC. So they don't socialize by hanging out in bars late at night. You know, they don't generally drink French wine. So there are all of these 
you know, mundane issues that we don't think about, but they pose obstacles as China tries to enter, you know, into global organizations and exercise greater influence. Um, in, in Pyeongchang, I was um, interested to visit China House because, as you may be aware, surrounding Olympic Games, we have these things called um, national houses or hospitality houses, which are operated by national Olympic committees and corporate sponsors and increasingly sport organizations and host cities and other kinds of entities. And this is a huge and growing phenomenon. And national um, houses have become uh, a big part of public diplomacy efforts in a number of countries. Uh, Switzerland, for example, was very aggressive in um, how it operated its national house in Pyeongchang. Um, Holland's Heineken House is uh, known as being sort of the, the biggest and the leader in the phenomenon. So I went um, to, to see China House. China, the China House was the, um, open to the public, uh, that's in scare quotes, for the first time ever. But to get in, you had to register online ahead of time, including giving them your passport number. And when uh, you, you got an appointment and when you arrived, you had to go through really intense layers of security before you got inside. And there I found that they had almost no public visitors, um, which was fine with them because that meant every visitor could be accompanied by multiple staff members on this little tour of this space. And um, so this was not exactly... Um, a great way to sort of really engage with publics outside of China, or even, for that matter, with Chinese citizens living in Korea. Um, and, and furthermore, um, I also discovered that they were debating, they knew they needed to expand China House's functions in Tokyo 2020 because uh, on the one hand, everyone's expanding these operations, and on the other hand, with Beijing being the following Olympic Games, there is a bit of a tradition that the host city of the next Games would have a big operation. But they were just very um, poorly informed about what the best practices were with other national houses. I, I don't think they had even visited any um, they didn't really know how they could expand their operations. They, they hadn't thought of some basic um, public diplomacy, you know, areas in which they um, could operate. Uh, just for example, I, I observed that there were there was a large number of um, ethnic Chinese, overseas Chinese on the American winter team and that they could invite them to China House. And um, although in in, uh, for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the relationship with overseas Chinese is very important. However, at China House, this was something that had not even occurred to them. So my, my point being that if you look at um, China's sort of practical, mundane um, level of engagement with the outside world, they're just still really struggling. They just, um, as the Chinese say, they haven't hooked up with international um, practices yet. That's very telling. I certainly remember my own experiences of the various houses in uh, London 2012 when I was working at, um, with LOCOG. And certainly they were, you know, the, the parallels with 
you know, embassy activity and sort of standard diplomatic practice was one of the things that first, you know, really resonated with me as, a, as an individual and made me, you know, ask questions of, of how they were conducting their, their diplomatic practice. And, you know, across, you know, a number of um, countries, there was some good, uh, you know, sort of best practice, if you like. Um, certainly those that were sponsored or have a, a strong brewing tradition, I think, were regarded as, um, you know, the, the sort of party houses, the social spaces to be in. But there was also some, you know, sort of stark examples of, um, you know, practice where almost the, they didn't know what to say to to the visitors, and you know, some of them were open to the public, some of them were more private. But it was it was telling how far that the different, um, you know, sort of national characteristics were played out, even when you know they had a, a good story to tell, as it were. Susan, I've um, taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, and uh, we look forward to uh, our paths crossing again. Thank you very much, Professor Susan Bromwell. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you.